Welcome to the Sperber Prize Podcast. I'm David Escobar. This season, I'll be talking to the winner and a few of the finalists for the Sperber Prize, which is Fordham's annual award given in honor of author Anne Sperber and her biography of Edward R. Murrow. The Sperber Prize seeks to promote outstanding biographies and memoirs, detailing the unseen backgrounds of some of history's biggest stories in print and electronic journalism. If you're not a journalism history buff, you've probably never heard the name Wallace Carroll. But in her book, Centuries Witness, author Mary McNeil tells the story of Wallace Carroll's life, from helping the Allies spread information during World War II to coming home to lead the Winston-Salem Journal in North Carolina. His work as a diplomatic reporter and a prolific editor at the newspaper has dubbed him the journalist's journalist. Joining me now to talk more about the book is its author, Mary McNeil. Mary, thanks so much for being here. Sure, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Thank you. So the first thing I wanted to ask you was, I guess in the broadest sense, can you just tell the listeners a little bit about who Wallace Carroll is? You know, this kind of figure we now know as the journalist journalist. Well, Wallace Carroll was a working journalist from 1929 to 1974. So he covered a lot of time and history during that period. Uh, he um, started off as a United Press foreign correspondent in Europe, covered the war, went into the Soviet Union, came back, worked uh, with James Reston and the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, and then went to become the editor and publisher of the Winston-Salem Journal and Sentinel. And uh, why people refer to him as the journalist journalist is because he was very well known within the journalistic community. He mentored many journalists who became famous, and he hired many journalists who became famous. And he was just ultimately respected by people who really were involved in the profession of journalism and integrity in journalism, if I can say that. He was very, um, you know, a character that you wanted to emulate. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people learned from him to be the way he was as a journalist. I also, I think it's worth pointing out that you actually had Wallace as a professor at Wake Forest. And mm-hmm. I'm curious, just was there something about that experience seeing him up close in person maybe not in the journalist context, but in the context of your constitutional law class, like what made you decide that you were interested in like telling the story of his life? Well, he was a very charismatic figure, but very quiet and very humble. Uh, He taught a class on the First Amendment. And what most of us knew at that time was just that he had been the editor and publisher of the Winston-Salem Journal, Wake Forest is at Winston-Salem. So We knew him as the former editor of the city paper. There was something about him that made you want to do your best for him. And it wasn't because he was harsh or he scared you. And it wasn't because he was overly loquacious. There was just something in his manner that you knew was filled with a lot of integrity and a lot of intelligence. So at the time, I had no idea, as did anybody else, because he never talked about it, all the stuff he had done before he came to the Winston-Salem Journal, and even what he had done while he was at the Journal. But he stayed with me. 
And I think in talking to people who had him as, as, a, as a professor and even people who worked with him, he had that kind of personality that just stayed with you. And it was a subtle kind of influence that you sometimes didn't even recognize you had until you started to work in journalism and his lessons sort of came to the fore. I think David Shriman, who was kind enough to write a, a review in the Wall Street Journal, summed it up. He said, I never really knew where these basic principles of journalism were coming from. But then I realized when I read the book what his principles were and where he was coming from so that he could be that kind of person. And then just to finish the story, I the reason I wrote the book was I was in London and I came across a book called Citizens of London, which is about Americans who were in London just before World War II and were working to influence the United States to join the effort against the Nazis with England, Edward R. Murrow and um, Averill Harriman, and then Gil Wynett, who was the U.S. ambassador at the time. And Wallace Carroll's name kept popping up all over the place. And I thought, whoa, is this my former professor? And then I started researching him and his papers were at the Library of Congress. And the more I researched, the more I couldn't believe all the things he had eyewitnessed, all the people he knew, all the things he had done, basically. So it was like peeling an onion in a way and that it was just became more and more interesting. Mm. And, and I so appreciate the um, kind of connection to Winston-Salem that he kind of established. And I want to get back to that later. But let's talk about World War II, Wallace Carroll being in Nazi Germany, covering Hitler, Mussolini, kind of even before their rise to power. Can you just tell us a little bit about some of that time when he was in Europe? I mean, one of the interesting things about him was that he was actually first in Europe in 1929. When he was 22 years old, UP sent him to London. And he was in London for several years, and then he was in Paris. And during that time, you had a lot of upheaval, economic upheaval. It was the time of the Depression. You had hunger strikes in London. You had this back and forth between the left and the right in France. And he covered all of this. So he could see the turmoil on the continent between what he called the haves and the have-nots. And then in 1934, they appointed him as the diplomatic correspondent to the League of Nations. So from 1934 to 1938, he was witness to all the diplomacy, or what he would call the failed diplomacy, in terms of trying to put uh, a stop to Hitler and Mussolini's rise collectively by the international community. So in 1939, when he was made chief of the United Press Office in London, right on the precipice of war, he had all this background coming into it. And he had wonderful contacts, wonderful sources. He was very well trusted. And so he was very well positioned to cover the coming of the war. He also was someone from the very beginning, because he had witnessed the rise of Hitler and Mussolini, he was very much against them from the beginning. All through the 30s, his UP columns, which were run on papers across the country, were very much warning about Mussolini, very much warning about Hitler, which was not always the case among the media, especially the more right-wing media in the United States at the time. So when the war started, he covered the Battle of Britain. Um, he covered the Blitz. His wife was with him also. That's another big story in the book. His wife was quite something. Um, and then at, when um, the Blitz was over in 1941, uh, he got a call from his boss at UP. The Nazis had just invaded the Soviet Union. 
And his boss said, can you get to the Soviet Union? And at that time, uh, we see, now we know that there's a lot of intelligence with the CIA and in international intelligence. At that time, there was very little intelligence on the Soviet Union, especially the Soviet Union army and their military forces, because Stalin had not let anybody in. So the chief of staff, George Marshall, actually called a bunch of editors together and said, can you get your reporters out there to find out some information about whether the Soviets could hold off the Nazis? And so he took a very hazardous trip up through the Arctic Circle, landed in Russia, went to Moscow, traveled to the Russian front. And then when the Nazis were invading and almost at the gates, Stalin made all the journalists leave and go to a place called Kubishev, which was a forlorn town in, in southwestern uh, Russia. And from there, they couldn't file any stories. So he had to get out. So he took this incredible six-week journey across the Asian continent by camel, truck, rowboat, train, and um, went to the Philippines, got on a boat that was due to arrive in Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. And the boat, fortunately for him, was delayed by a few days. So he landed on December 14th. But he knew the person who was the information officer for Admiral Kibble, who was head of the Navy then. So that got him on board a skiff to go around and look at the destruction in Pearl Harbor. And so he was one of the first reporters to be able to give an eyewitness account of that. So he was a little bit like the Forrest Gump of, of his time, in the sense he seemed to always be arriving at the moment when it was most reportable. Uh, and you could say that was luck, or you could say that was just his ability to see the big picture and place himself in certain positions. And that, that's so interesting because, I mean, him being in Europe at that time, obviously, we're going to think he just kind of struck gold. But it, it seems like it's kind of as he starts globetrotting, he also has that same experience. One of the other things that I really wanted to ask you about Europe is his role as a government propagandist during the war. And obviously, being a journalist may be something he was not super familiar with or comfortable with. So how did, in your research for this, how did you find that he reconciled those two roles? That's a very good question and one that I, I asked myself too. And I think a lot of journalists ask themselves because we now see propaganda as this negative that is not what you want to be doing if you're a if you're a legitimate journalist. I think when he got back from Hawaii, Pearl Harbor, he was going to go back to London and work for United Press. But he got a call from a guy named Elmer Davis, who was head of the Office of War Information. And at the time, this was an office that was set up to do two things. One was to provide information on the war to the domestic American public, and the other was to provide information to those countries captured under the Nazi boot, so to speak. And they recruited him to do the former because he had spent so much time in Europe. And he, he always thought that he wanted to do more for the war effort than just be a reporter. And I think because he also very much respected this man, Elmer Davis, who was a very popular uh, radio personality at the time, he decided to take it on. But he acknowledged he didn't know how to do it. But they sent him to London, and he had extremely good connections in London. The British trusted him. So he worked very much with them to develop messages, primarily at the beginning, to enable 
people in the occupied territories to have hope that the allies were coming. Don't worry. We believe in what you're doing. You know, we know what you're suffering. And he saw that as a very valid thing to do. He always believed you had to capture people's hearts and minds, not just capture them militarily. And so I think that's how he justified it. And he saw the difference between journalism and propaganda as he never really lied in his propaganda. He just, if there were things that should be withheld because he thought they were dangerous to national security or he didn't think they would benefit the people that they were trying to reach, he, they wouldn't publish it. But they didn't publish lies because they knew that if you publish the lies, they come back to bite you because people find out. And also there were radios. There, people had uh, access to different ways of getting information on the continent. So I think that's also how he rationalized it. Public service he wanted to do, and he believed very strongly that messaging was important in bringing about victory. And I think that's also interesting because as I thought about his career trajectory, he's kind of situated in this time where media is constantly changing. And as we know, like we live in a world where forms of, we have digital media now, and back in his time, you're getting into broadcast media and... I think about his Vietnam Quo Vadis editorial and what that meant to Vietnam. This all just very much has me thinking of Wallace Carroll seems like a man who really believes in the power of words. I wonder, is that something that you found as well? Oh, absolutely. He had many opportunities to go into radio and television, but he always believed in the written word. I asked his family and they said, well, they thought he really felt that was the most powerful way to influence people. Now, it was a while ago, so, you know, you could argue whether that's really true, especially nowadays. But um, absolutely, his life was built around that. He believed that words had the power to persuade, and that was not a bad thing if you gave the reader the facts, the background, the context, you reported the truth, they could make up their own minds, but you had to give them that information. And one of the interesting things that he advocated as far back as 1955, which we're facing today, is he had a theory that he published in a Neiman paper called the theory of object, the tyranny of objectivity. And in essence, what that means is he didn't feel that even if it was a public figure, if they were lying, you didn't have to print their lie. And uh, he was doing in the context of Eugene McCarthy, of course, in 1955. But some of that is very relevant today when we're talking about objectivity in journalism. And he had seen, you know, he had seen the rise of these dictators. He had, you know, was under the bombs during the Blitz. And he really wanted journalists and others to understand the dangers inherent in publicizing people that were lying for the sake of power grabbing. And he carried that through his life. And, and I so appreciate, I was going to ask you about the objectivity of tyranny, or the tyranny of objectivity, rather. Obviously, we live in a world now where, like, that is something that has just become, I think, an even bigger problem in the news media. You see the coverage of Donald Trump during the 2016 election, and even to this day, some of the things that are said on more right-wing conservative media. W what do you think... Wallace Carroll would have to say about all of this. I, I know you already kind of alluded to it, but I think what would he say, I guess, about the broader world of journalism in 2023? Well, I, of course, think he would be appalled. 
I don't think he necessarily would be surprised because let's not kid ourselves. You know, the media has not always been objective, even in, in this, you know, the 20s, 30s, 40s. But I think he would be particularly appalled by, by the coverage of Donald Trump for the reason I just said. Why is he getting so much coverage if he's somebody that is always lying? He and James Reston, who was his good colleague, the journalist James Reston, they, they hated a couple things. They hated hyperbole in language, uh, which we see a lot now, even in the legitimate, if I may say so, written media sometimes we, we see that. Another thing I think he would have been very much against was this use of unnamed sources uh, to a huge degree. Um, I think that he didn't think that was fair to the reader to publish things from unnamed sources. I mean, maybe a couple, but in the way they're being used now, I think he would have been very appalled at. And I think he really would argue quite a bit about um, the dangers inherent and probably write and publish about the dangers inherent in the media promoting people that he didn't think were in the best interests of the country. But like I said, I'm not sure it would be surprised. In fact, there's some quotes in the book that he made back in the 50s that basically warned that it someday we would have someone who would use the media and, you know, would would therefore come to power uh, because of that. And now, because we have so many channels, so many different ways, people are a little naive or were about what to believe and not to believe. So they were easily taken in sometimes by the lies um, because there's so many so many different ways to get your information and you can go to your confirmation bias. You know, you can go to the one channel that is telling you what you want to believe. I, I promised we'd get back to Winston-Salem and I want to go there now. Um, that's one of the things I really found interesting about Wallace Carroll. I mean, as, as somebody who is a young journalist, he kind of is almost doing like the opposite of what you think you're supposed to. He goes international. He goes and chases these insane stories around the world, comes back to cover nationally, at, I believe, the New York Times and other publications. Then he comes back all the way to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, the Winston-Salem Journal. Why did Wallace Carroll think that going back to the local newsroom was the right move for him rather than just like keep going into the more prestigious areas of journalism, quote-unquote? Well, I think there's a couple reasons. Um, and it was true, he had the reverse order in terms of what most journalists have, world correspondent, then national, then than local. I think he liked independence. And he really, there were some instances at the New York Times right before he left where his editors in New York were telling him what to print and even changing some of his quotes, which I think was, he just didn't want to do that. So when he went to Winston-Salem, the owner of the paper at the time was a guy named Gordon Gray, who was a conservative, but he promised Carol that he would have total independence and he would make him the publisher and the editor. And I think that was really tantamount to him at this point in his career. He'd seen so much, but he wanted to have the independence to write and to run the paper the way he saw fit. And remember, Winston-Salem, North Carolina in 1963 was, was a different place. I mean, it was segregated. He arrived right when the Surgeon General's report on smoking tobacco came out, you know, that it would kill you if you smoked tobacco. Um, there were a lot of issues that he felt he could have an effect on the community. I mean, and he wanted to do that. He wanted to have his writing have an effect. And I think that's another reason why he went by, went back. 
Also, I found one quote from a friend of his, you know, he and his wife had lived through a lot. And I think they liked the more laid back environment in, in Winston-Salem. And and you alluded to her a little bit there, but you do talk about his wife pretty extensively in the book. And so I'm just wondering if you can fill the listeners in a little bit about the relationship that he had with her. When I was researching it, several people told me that she was the one that I should be writing about. And not him, <laughs> even though she didn't have a professional career outside of the marriage. She was, uh, her name was Peggy. She came from a very well-educated, prominent background. Her father had invented the yellow fever vaccine. She had grown up living all over the world. Uh, she spoke French fluently. He met her in Geneva when she was working for Gil Wynett at the International Labor Organization. She was trained uh, as an economist. She went to Nasser. And she was just a force. She was the opposite of him in that she was very outgoing, extroverted, vivacious. He was very quiet, came across as a very sort of subdued individual. But together, they were a perfect match because she was very social. She helped him in developing his contacts. And I got a box of her letters when I was about to finish the book. And what emerged from that not only was her personality, which I was able to get into the book, but the love story, (laughs) which is always nice to read about. And it it lasted for 63 years. And it was a partnership as well as a love story. And it's a challenge to be that successful professionally, but also have this wonderful private life with four children that, that, you know, his son became, his son John Carroll became a very famous journalist. And it was just a wonderful life. You know, that's another reason I wanted to capture it because it was a remarkable, like a round, well-rounded, and remarkable life. And people adored it. You know, people respected and they adored him at the same time. The more I read this book, the more I just came to realize that Wallace Carroll is somebody who I would say a little borderline obsessed with getting it right, having a lot of nuance in your reporting and making sure that you are kind of paying as the journalist, you have this debt that you almost owe to your readers in terms of um, they give you they trust you, so you have to give them the proper information and really fill them in. So I was just wondering, is there anything that you feel or that Wallace Carroll felt that maybe he didn't get right? He definitely made mistakes. Um, when he went into Russia, he he predicted that the Soviets will hold off the Nazis, but he didn't think they would go into Eastern Europe the way they did. And so he underestimated Stalin's brutality um, at the time. He also, and I I have to put this out there, he wrote a pretty negative report for Pearl Harbor about the possibility of Japanese spies being on the island, which he regretted because he didn't expect it to have the kind of effect it did along with other things in terms of we know what happened to the Japanese Americans. That was one of the biggest regrets he had in his life. But as as an editor and as someone... He learned, you know, he learned from his mistakes. And I think that was why he was able to write Quo Vadis when he did at exactly the right time, why he was able to develop as he did and to mentor these, these, these journalists. You know, you would be also, if you were a journalist working for him, you would be more than slightly scared of him <laughs> because, you know, if you made a mistake or even a grammatical mistake, I have a thing in the book, the worst thing you wanted to have was a little blue note from him on the bulletin board saying that you had incorrectly done something in your piece. 
whether it was a grammatical error or maybe a fact you got wrong because you did not want that to happen. You were afraid of him. And I think that's a quality in editors you have to have. I think journalists, you know, they're out there and they all have egos. You have to write hurt on them a little bit. And you've probably been in newsrooms and so on and so forth. And to me, that was something he did, not in a mean way or not in a way that was demeaning to anyone, but a standard. You know, you hold the standard. Thanks again to Mary McNeil for our wonderful conversation, and thank you for tuning in. I'm David Escobar, and this is the Sperber Prize Podcast.